Hello, my creatures of the night. You know, I never drink wine. But I do listen to Norman Shaggy on the Topcast. Yeah. You're listening to Topcast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash topcast. Welcome to another episode of Topcast. Today on Topcast, we're going to be talking to a gentleman that did the dot matrix art for a good number of the 1990s Williams Bally Dot Matrix pinball games. He did games from Attack from Mars, Circus Voltaire, Cactus Canyon, Indianapolis 500, Junkyard, Medieval Madness, Monster Bash, No Fear, No Good Gophers, Red and Ted Roadshow, and he did a number of the Pinball 2000 uh, games too, the 3D animation in those games too. Adam has also done the Dot Matrix art for a couple of the newer Stern games too. And we're going to be talking to him on how he did these games and his experiences as an art and dot guy on these on these machines. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. I'd like to welcome Adam Ryan. Adam again worked on you know a good majority of the WPC games, uh, the dot matrix artwork and animations uh, for the WPC games. Adam did a total of 26 games. For Williams and Bally, and then of course he worked on the Pinball 2000 game. So let's give Adam Ryan a call right now, and let's uh, let's talk to him. This is Adam. Adam, it's Clay. Hi there. How are you? Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you just fine. Cool. So you know, I went to the Internet Pinball database. Okay. And I just did like a you know I did I typed in your last name under people, and it, it brings up a, uh, a bunch of games, you know, that, that you were, quote, acknowledged as yes. as doing. I'm sure you've probably done more than this. Actually, the, yeah, this morning I spent a little time writing out, uh, this is the first time I've done this, uh, all the games that I did work on, I counted 26. Okay, so yeah, they're three short. I, you know what, they always are, they're, they always kind of leave people out. You know. <laughs> Especially dot guys. Y- yeah, be- yeah, you guys are kind of like, you know, the important part that everybody forgets, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. Well, it's true because you know all the visuals are right. You know, are there. But anyways, um, okay. Let's let's back up. Like, how did how did you get started in the whole pinball thing? Or were you like an artist and you kind of got sucked into this? Or were you uh, a pinball guy and you wanted to be into this? Or? Well, actually, uh, the, yeah, I sort of, as you said, got sucked into it. Um, what had happened is I graduated from college with a degree in illustration. Uh, while in college, I had done some freelance computer animation work for an educational movie company. And this man had loaned me, and get this, a 386-25 with a 14-inch monitor. woo Super high-tech back then. This is 1991. So upon leaving college, saw an ad in the paper for a deluxe animation uh, animator. I figure, how, how much different could it possibly be from Autodesk Animator Pro, which is what I was using? So I interviewed and uh, got the job actually at WMS Gaming, which was the video lottery terminal and slot machine division of Williams. Hmm. To that time, they had been using Linda Deal, who was a uh, pinball artist, right? Uh, who had done uh, Theater of Magic, uh, Doctor Who, those sort of games. But she was way too busy for gaming. So they decided to hire a full-timer, and I was the first one. 
So you actually brought, you came in under the slot machine division, but this was just, you were just responding to an ad in the paper. Exactly. So uh, while there, I definitely learned the chops of how to be a digital artist in a game environment, uh, working with software engineers and game designers, but for gambling. So hmm. while I was at WMS Gaming, uh, my coworkers and I would sneak over to the Williams building, and we would play pinball. Did you, were you playing, uh, were you, now, were you at California Avenue, or were you at Waukegan? Yeah, this is California Avenue. Okay. So, did they, um, and that's where all the designers pretty much were located back then? Exactly. Um, Pinball had these, this, the top floor, which is the second floor, and at that time, Midway was the first floor. And then the building adjacent to it, only separated by an alley, was the gaming division. Okay. Now, at the time, gaming was going through, they were getting sued by IGT. Very and, much so, yes. And they were, they were, that forced Williams to go from uh, like a real base slot to basically video slots, and that's where you came in as an artist, right? Right. They'd actually, they, their very first toe in the water of gaming was uh, video lottery terminals. So hmm. these are state-sponsored gambling terminals, like in South Carolina, uh, you know, now I'm forgetting all the states, but uh, definitely not Illinois. So I was working on uh, video poker, video slots, but only on the video side. And how was, I mean, were you doing, like, uh, just general color animations on, like, a VGA-style monitor type thing? Yeah, exactly. I would do, uh, you know, Lucky 7s, and I would do Cherries and different, uh, different gaming graphics, uh, whatever animations had to be done. And then as we moved into the real spinners, which were the actual physical slot machines that had those uh, spinning wheels, then I was doing uh, what's called belly glass art. So that is actually very high-res uh, illustration for what you see in the middle and the top of the game, like where the, the pay table is. Are you talking, is that like silkscreen dart? Yeah, that's eventually silkscreen, but we were creating it in Adobe Illustrator. Oh, okay. It, it, Adobe Illustrator, so that means that everything was instead of vector, or it was, yeah, it was vector graphics instead of pixel graphics. Exactly. So I sort of, at that time, graduated from pixels to vectors. Okay, now was it hard working in vector versus pixel? Uh, it, at first, yes, but uh, they had hired a man named Al Thomas, who was, uh, he worked out in Las Vegas as a game de uh, graphic designer and illustrator for the gaming industry. Uh, when he was brought over to Chicago, he taught me the ropes. He is just a, an absolute genius when it comes to Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop. So just by sitting next to the guy, by osmosis, I learned pretty much the fundamentals and how to think and create using those programs, and I'm still using those same skills today. It, I mean, originally when you, now where did you go to college? What school? I went to college at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. So when you were in college, were you, you probably weren't using the computer at all for I any. I did not touch a computer my entire four and a half years uh, while well, well in college. Fortunately, uh, that educational movie producer loaned me a computer to use at school as a freelancer. That's how I got my chops down. Okay, so but at, at school nobody was doing that, huh? Pretty much right. I think there's one Macintosh in the whole building, and that was for the visual communication guys, which were doing page layout, which was very boring. And was it a black and white Mac at the time? I believe so, yes. I had seen it, but I never touched it. Okay, okay, interesting. Now, what year did you graduate? Graduated in uh, August of 92. And they had no computers back then. Well, at least in the art department. We were even told that uh, you won't be seeing computers in the art field for another five years. Boy, were they wrong. Yeah, like usual, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those college guys, they just don't get out. Those college professors, they just don't get out much. 
they certainly do not. And actually, when I had gone back there, I told some of my professors and commercial illustration uh, guys, you might want to look around. There's something called Photoshop out there. And a year after I told them that, they started getting computers into that department. So when you said Photoshop to them, did they give you like a blank stare? I think they had heard of it, but they had no idea it was as pervasive as it was at that time. Hmm. Okay, so now you're doing uh, slot machines at WMS. And these, you graduated to the ones where you've got the real slots, but some of those machines had dot matrix displays, right? Actually, uh, when I departed gaming, that, that was actually before they integrated dots into slot machines. Okay. So your first your first workings in dot matrix was in pinball then? Exactly. Okay. Now, so you've got a dot matrix display on pinball, which is, what, uh, 128 pixels wide by, by 32 high. tall. and. How many levels of intensity is each dot? Is like uh, three? They were, there are three shades. There's the 100% on, 90% on, and 75% on, and then zero, or off. Right, okay. So when you start doing art for that, I mean, that must have been required some learning curve there. Oh, incredible. It is so simple, it's difficult. It's a, there's a paradox. <laughs> right. That, you know, how hard could 32 pixel high graphics be in three colors? Well, sit down and try it. All right. <laughs> yeah, I definitely uh, went through some pain in just wrapping my brain around how to create the illusion of reality and motion only using three colors with 32 pixels high. So what was the first game you worked on? very first game was Corvette, which is a George Gomez game. Um, I had done, I believe, it might have been like a shoot again or a replay animation. Uh I had come in at the very end of that project, and fortunately a lot of the dots were already done as far as drawings of uh, Corvettes, so I was able to cut and paste and create new graphics using uh, Scott Slomiani and Eugene Gears graphics. Oh, okay. Now, when you're doing this, what developmental tools do you use in, in, in the dot matrix thing? Well, back then we were using, and actually to this day, we're using Deluxe Animation, which is by Electronic Arts. The last update of that software was 1990. Oh, wow. Yes, talk about software with dust on it. But you know what? Since then, there have been no other tools that have been as perfect as Deluxe Animation for doing this kind of graphics. Does that even run in Windows? It does run in Windows. Uh, it, I haven't tried it on XP, but it does run in Win95. I, I would... Guess that there was well, was there any Macintosh tools, or was you were using a PC? I assume it was an all PC company, and it probably still is. Um, so they they plopped a PC on my desk and said, "Here you go." Hmm. So even today, like you've done some recent stuff, you've done you know you did Ripley's and, and NASCAR. Exactly. Are you still using the same tool? I am still using Deluxe Animation. I have a Win ninety five computer in a very small room in my condo. And I turn off all the lights, and I just I get sort of into the dot groove, just like it used to be in pinball. Now, when you started doing the the dot matrix animations and all that for the pinball side, was did you like basically abandon everything else that you were doing and you just became a dot guy and nothing else? Well, here are you referring to after work or at Williams? Uh, both, actually. Um, well, at Williams, here's what had happened: uh, the gaming department, after being there a year and a half. Uh, it was a very volatile company, and it still is on the gaming side. Uh, they decided to have a big transition, and they decided to lay off a fourth of the art department, and they told me I was uh, heading out the door. 
Mm, nice. So at that time, they invited me to interview in pinball and in video, which it was midway. So I interviewed with Greg Ferreris, and I interviewed uh, with some video guys, and I was actually at that time turned down by both. So I got my walking papers, and I immediately, the very next day after getting laid off, I went to uh, Data East. So went to Data East to talk to Joe Kamenkow, who hired me on the spot. But there was a caveat there. Uh, while I was at Williams, I had signed a non-compete contract, oh. which as a 22-year-old uh, and a very stupid one at that, I didn't read the fine print, which said that I cannot work for a competitor of Williams for a year after leaving, no matter what division it happens to be. Right. So here I was, a uh, gambling artist or a gaming artist, interviewing at a pinball company, and I was still prevented from working there. So some lawyers got to work between Williams and Data East. In the meantime, Scott Slomiani was promoted to game designer, and Eugene Gear was promoted to a video artist at Midway. So now, suddenly, there were two slots open for Dot Guys. So I got a call from, uh, actually it was Ken Fidesna, uh, who is general manager of Williams, saying, hey, want to be a Dot Guy? I said, mm. okay. So I went over uh, to uh, join Greg Ferreris and his team, and uh, I became the first of two new Dot Guys. Who was the other guy that came in with you? The other guy is named Brian Morris. Uh, he is a guy from Chicago, and we interviewed quite a few people. I, I was there for a lot of the interviews. Uh, he's a fantastic artist and a really great and warm guy, and I think he's the only person in my entire life who I saw interview while wearing sandals and still got the job. <laughs> now, how come I don't see his name? I mean, you're, you see, if you look on games, I know I always look for you know the listings, and I see your name not as much as like Scott the Dot. Scott right. the Dot, you see almost on every game. It's oh sure, like. um, and I see your name occasionally, but I don't think I've ever seen his name. Uh, let's see, Brian. Look at my list. Brian Morris was definitely part of I think Theater of Magic might have been his first game, and that was '94. Now Brian uh, lasted all the way until Medieval Madness, and then when we went through a, a round of layoffs at Williams, uh, Brian was moved part time to Midway, so he was still doing dots for for Williams, but he was also a video artist for Midway. Oh, okay. So he's sharing the, sharing the limelight, as it may be. Exactly. Okay, so now, your first game was Corvette, and you said that some other guys had done most of the cars. Right, it was Slomiani and Eugene Gear. Okay, so now, when, you, when they pass this off to you, are you just doing the art itself, or do you actually have to do the code that animates the art? No, I did well there. I did no code whatsoever. Nothing. Um, I would create these animations on individual frames in deluxe animation, which you can page through either individually or play in sequence. Uh, we would export what are called BBM files, which are as obscure as you can get. Uh, we would hand these si single BBM files over to the programmers. Uh, for instance, uh, like Matt Coriel, Dwight Sullivan, uh, Lyman Sheets, those are all programmers who would then take these BBMs and import them into their system, and I don't know what kind of magic or voodoo they do, but uh, it appeared on the dot screen in the choreography that they wanted. Now, when you're developing this using your software, you're doing it on a standard video monitor, right? Exactly. So, but when they're doing the animations in that, they're uh, doing it on a dot matrix or something? Yes, and actually, about halfway through my tenure there, they, they built me what's called a dot box 
which was actually a plasma display in a metal casing that could be plugged into the printer port of my computer. So I could actually send any frame I wanted to to print, and then I would see it displayed on an actual plasma display. Was that uh, a helpful tool? or? Not? Oh, absolutely, very helpful, because what I noticed is whatever you do on screen is actually appears wider on the plasma display because of the spacing in between the light bulbs. Oh, okay. So if you do someone's face and it looks absolutely perfect on your uh, computer and you display it on the plasma screen, they get a little fatter. But they didn't do this to what year did you get that? Uh boy, uh 97 maybe. It was it was late in the game. Wow. So so when you would export these things and give them off to the programmers and that, would they come back and say, you know, this one looks funky, can you make them skinnier or something? Oh, sure. Or I'd actually go to their office, we'd hang out, and uh, they'd actually play back the animation in, in their development game. And I could get a, definitely get a sense of what I did wrong and what needs to be changed. And how much of that iteration did you have to go through on any particular game? I guess it depends on the programmer. Uh, some were more picky than others. Uh I think there were more iterations when it came to actual like licenses and recognizable actors. Oh, right. Like for instance, uh, NBA Fast Break, and I forget the count, but I had to do over 140 portraits of the starters of the NBA. Oh, man, that must have taken forever. It did, and I was not given all the reference material. I had to go surf the web to find some of these rookies who became starters, and there were no photos of them on the web. I had to go. Uh, you know, research magazines or, or find action shots of them and try to make them look like portraits. It was a complete nightmare. Huh, and, and so you spent more time on NBA Fast Break than you did on anything else then? Uh, not necessarily, but I, I do remember in particular just taking at least two weeks just to draw portraits of these uh, starters. Wow. And it became a little tedious after a while. So most of your work was on the front end of the game development, we're, and then you hand this off to the programmers, and most of their work then is going to be more on the back end. So it sounds like that they would get into more of a crunch when games needed finished in time than you would, that you might be able to relax a little bit. Yeah, there was the, the fortunate part of being a dot animator is that even though I worked on every single game, I didn't have a focus. When it came to what they called game hell, I was usually spared most of the hell part. Hmm. Okay. Now, when you went over and started working for Stern uh, on these on these uh, on these last two games, was the development procedure or you know how you did everything and and who you worked with was it really any different than with you know with Williams? Well, actually, I never worked at Stern. I did this on a freelance basis for Pat Lawler Design. Okay. And so, so I was actually at home in my condo, uh, safely tucked away. And uh, I would create these dot animations and then email them to Louis Coziars. Uh, now, did you have? Do you still have that plasma dot box that hooks up to your printer port? Not at all. And in fact, all of the dots I did for Ripley's, for uh, Grand Prix, and for NASCAR, I have never seen. I've never seen any of these games. Huh. Okay. Now, you weren't able to uh, when uh, when WMS, uh, you know, or when Williams closed down in '99, they didn't. As a going-away present, give you one of these boxes? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, as a going-away present, they made a uh, Revenge from Mars available to me to purchase, so I did definitely purchase one. Okay. <laughs> now, when they went to when they went to P 
Pinball 2000, did were you involved in that much? Uh, very much so. Um, I was the animation coordinator for the whole department. So what had happened is as soon as we, uh, it was, I should say, the platform was announced and approved and we had got the go-ahead, uh, I was asked if I could lead the team to do all of the 3D video graphics. And so was... I accepted, but I accepted at a time when I had no idea how to do 3D design. <laughs> so another learning curve. Uh, that was it. Talk about an extreme learning curve. That was the dot, dot learning curve was nothing compared to this. So, what tools were you? Did you have to use for the for the Pinball 2000 stuff? Well, initially we were going to go with 3D Studio Max, and I must admit that that's a much harder program to learn from the ground up than others. So, I remember some very long nights. I had all the manuals at home, reading them cover to cover, thinking, "How the heck am I going to do this?" Because not only do I have to perform. But I have to lead the team in developing graphics on a platform that has, doesn't even exist at the time. So did anybody else that was working with you know how to do this? Well, we, had, we, we fortunately put together a really good team. Uh, I was the first one, and I, was, I uh, headed up the, the video department. We brought on Jack Lydon, who had come from Data East as a dot guy. He was working in gaming at WMS, but he had, had a 3D uh, background. So we brought him over to work on Pinball 2000. Then we started interviewing some new guys. We brought on uh, Dave Miller and Scott Sanders, both of which are, were, at the time, really young guys, fresh out of school, but they had uh, a lot of 3D experience. Hmm. So did they, ha- did they help you get through this curve? In fact, uh, it was Scott Sanders who recommended uh, using what's called LightWave, which is a product by NewTek. Now, LightWave, fortunately for me, was a much easier tool to learn, especially when you have someone sitting next to you teaching. Right, right. So instead of 3D Studio Max, which was a major headache, and I did learn it later on in life, but uh, at the time, LightWave was an, actual, an absolute godsend. I was able to learn the software, uh, master it over time, and help everyone else get into the pinball groove. All right, so let's, let's take uh, an example on, like, say, Revenge from Mars. Um, when the game boots up, you know, you see the, the you know, the saucer ships, and they, they kind of come at you. Right. Okay. Was that, like, one of the first animations you did for the game? Uh, actually, that was not mine. That was Scott Sanders, and, and truth be told, that was one of the only animations he did for that whole game. Okay. Um, I had teamed him up with Greg Ferreris and asked Greg to do a storyboard to design the intro to the game. So Greg Ferreris, who's one of the most talented artists I've ever met, uh, drew some fantastic storyboards, handed off to Scott Sanders, and they worked forever to get the choreography down on that thing. So just because a, a lot of people probably don't know what a storyboard is, a storyboard is just like basically almost a comic strip of, of, of hard art that, that he basically just drew with a, with a pencil, right? Exactly. They, they are the, the key moments in an animation or in a, in a, a film, I guess you could say, that the, you hand this uh, sequen- or sequential drawing off to an animator who then uh, makes sure that those key points are hit during a, uh, a film. And, of course, they have to, the animator has to fill in between each one of these frames, everything in between, too. Exactly. So it's, it's a huge job, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, so now doing animation for the Pinball 2000 platform I mean, the actual, once you learn the tools, how much more difficult was it than using the, doing the animations for, you know, a dot matrix screen? 
I would say almost infinitely, because when doing 3D modeling and 3D animation, uh, the, the development cycle is far greater. Uh, when you create a 3D model, you are literally creating it in three dimensions. You have to do the side and the back of any object that you're creating. Right, you have to be able to draw basically every angle of it, and then after you have that drawn, then you can use the package to, you know, spin it or turn it or make it go forward, left or right or backwards. Exactly, that's that's right. Okay, so you actually have to draw something that looks like, you know, like if you're drawing an egg, you've got to draw every side and every ripple in its, in its casing and, and everything, right? Yeah, it's it's a, a complete, as opposed to just drawing a portrait, which is one view of one person, you have to draw the sides and back of their head, and if you want them to talk, you have to put extra geometry, or three-dimensional geometry, into their mouths and their eyes to make them blink, mouths to make them move. Uh, it, it's a much bigger deal. You are trying to replicate reality in uh, three-dimensional space. Now, for Star Wars... Did uh, did Lucas help at all with any of this? They both helped and hindered. This is this was hysterical that uh, we actually received some CD-ROMs from ILM, and we were just like little kids. We were all excited. Wow, ILM graphics, and here they are. Well, guess what? They purposefully ruined the models, the 3D models. They gave us damaged and corrupted models so that we would not reverse engineer what they do and help their competitors. Oh, man. So basically what they gave you was useless then? Uh, it was in part useless. We had to go spend many weeks on each model to repair them, and we repaired them using our software. So when we were finally done, we had something that we could use but definitely would not be useful to any of ILM's competitors. So, and that was their intention, obviously. Yes, but what was really frustrating is Williams paid the most money ever for that license. Uh, I'm not sure the exact dollar amount, but we were told this was the most expensive pinball license in history. Yet, after forking over all that money, they gave us damaged goods. And there was nothing you could do about it? No, I mean, how are you supposed to argue with Lucasfilm and ILM? Right. Now, who's ILM? Uh, that's Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, George Lucas owns that company, and they do all the uh, um, special effects for all Lucasfilm movies, and they do, uh, I guess, other movie companies can hire them to do their graphics. And, I mean, if they had given you actual 3D models, could have you reverse-engineered and, and really done that? what they were afraid of? Uh, I would say no, because here we were, five or six guys, you know, uh, pinball artists, working in a very small environment. We didn't have the equipment that they had at ILM. You know, George Lucas has $2 billion in his back pocket, um, so the budgets are quite skewed there. Uh, I, it would have been very challenging to reverse engineer and to you know, sell off or, or reveal any of their secrets to anyone. I, I was very frustrated at that uh, business decision. And do they, does, does the, uh, the Light Magic Company, do they use the same software that you guys were using? No, they used, uh, let's see, i got to remember what they used. Um, I believe it was both Soft Image and, uh, now I can't remember, it's, it's one of the, the higher end, oh, Silicon Graphics, that was it. And so that's uh, a Silicon lot. Silicon Graphics workstations. A lot more expensive. Into the five and six figures for each workstation. So, right. yeah, we're, it was night and day. Right, right, so, okay. So now, the, so the Star Wars thing, to get the Star Wars graphics up and running was that a lot more work than the revenge 
Um, it, it was different in that we had to use their graphics, but it was also exciting in that uh, uh, Larry DeMar actually sectioned off part of the pinball engineering uh, department uh, behind locked doors. There were only 19 of us who had signed non-disclosure agreements with Lucasfilm who were allowed in, the, in those rooms. Hmm. So John Papaduke had a, actually I think it was a chemical waste cabinet with a lock on it, uh, this huge metal uh, cabinet with all of Lucas's uh, secret documents and style guides, uh, CD-ROMs, and the 19 of us who were working on the game had access to it, but no one else did. And when the game was done, I mean, did he have to dispose of that stuff? Uh, you know, I don't know where it went, but yeah, when the game was done, the door was unlocked and everyone can come on in because the secret was out. Right, right. Okay, so let's back back up to the uh, to the Dot Matrix stuff. When you were doing the Dot Matrix, what was the game that you were most proud of that you did? I would say it's a combo of two. There was Attack from Mars and Medieval Madness. Uh, they're both uh, Brian Eddy games, and Brian was unique in that he definitely ran his teams as with the, with the capital T as a team. Uh, he listened to everybody's input, no matter who it was, and if your ideas were any good, it actually went in the game. Hmm. So did you have any good ideas that got implemented? Uh, I think so. Um, I brought the big O beam to the table during Attack from Mars, uh, and the extra ball show was actually my idea, with the Martian getting smacked in the head by the pinball. Yeah, that's a good one. I like and, that one. You know, it, I had it in mind what I, how I wanted it to feel and look and, and play out, and Dan Forden must have read my mind, because I didn't talk to him at all. He saw the show, did that great music with that really grotesque impact sound with that squishy sound effect. Right. And it was just complete perfection when he got through with it. Now, what was, uh, this one's maybe more strange, what was the one game that you were least proud of? Uh, I guess there were a couple games which were very frustrating. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not proud of them, but they were a little more difficult. Um, Congo actually was a game, it was a John Trudeau game, I believe the first play field was developed and then rejected, so they had fallen way behind on their development cycle. Uh, Brian Morris and I, the, the two dot guys, were uh, working on three other games, and then that was foisted upon us as a latecomer where we were told, do it as fast as you can. So in between doing these three other games, I you know, had to squeeze in Congo dots, and I don't think I did as good a job as I could have. Also... We were not provided with a lot of reference material from the movie company. Was this before the movie came out that you were working on this? Yeah, it was quite a bit before. Um, I went ahead, I purchased the book and read it, but that really didn't help. Um, we only had a three-minute trailer of the movie to work from. Uh, the rest we kind of made up. and I, I would have liked to have done it better you know, with more time, more development cycle, and better references. So when you're doing a licensed theme... You guys don't get to see the movie ahead or anything? Uh, we did for Johnny Mnemonic, and believe me, that was not a treat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you after you saw that movie, were you like, oh my, <laughs> can well, we, can we know, turn this license in? We saw the director's cut, which actually had a different ending. It had an ending where uh, Johnny Mnemonic, the Keanu Reeves character, did not get his memory back. So it was a little bit edgy. And I thought, okay, that, that's pretty interesting that the hero didn't actually win. He He got the bad guy, but... He didn't get his memory back. So when my friends and I all went to the movie theater to go see it, the, the final cut, it had this 
sweet, sappy ending where, oh, Johnny gets his brain back, and it was just absolute Hollywood garbage. <laughs> now, when they when they would send you this uh, director's cut, would it come on like a DVD or how? No, how this was back in the good old days of VHS. So uh, we sat around. Actually, I watched that movie back to front twenty two times by the time the game was done. You mean just to make sure that everything you were implementing was correct? Right. We had to, Brian Morris and I had to find the exact scenes we had to uh, replicate in dots, and we had to you know, watch it over and over, make sure we had the graphics right. Just uh, rather painful. And does the company, you know, the movie company come in and see your game or, or have to approve any of the animations? Um, good question. I don't know if either Johnny Mnemonic or Congo really went through that kind of approval process. Now, Star Wars is a different animal. Uh, they sent a Lucas, Lucasfilm rep showed up, and she reviewed the game very critically. What, what kind of comments did she have? Uh, she actually had most of her comments for the back glass. Um, Kevin O'Connor, I guess, had not made the pod race large enough. And when she wanted him to make it bigger, it was pretty much too late. You know, how do you go back in with an eraser and fix a painting? So what happened? Uh... We might have talked our way out of it, or maybe he put a glow behind it. He, I forget exactly what he did to make them happy, but uh, they eventually signed off on it. So the translate is an actual painting, then? Yes. Um, all the artists throughout uh, William's history actually would go ahead and uh, hand-paint uh, all of these back glasses. They would do it with airbrush, uh, acrylic paint, watercolor. Whatever tool they needed. Exactly. And then it would be photographed at the end of the day and uh, run as a translate. Huh. Okay, so now, on some of these other animations, like when you're working on a non-licensed theme, you know, like most of your games are actually non-licensed themes. So they, were they actually, in fact, easier because everything was in-house and you didn't have to deal with any of these exterior motivators? Yeah, I'd definitely say so, um, because we got to use whatever references we wanted to. Um, like for Attack from Mars, we went ahead, we went on a movie binge, uh, uh, purchasing movies like, uh, I think it was, was it the uh, Day the Earth Stood Still, and I think it was like Flying Saucers from Mars, or... All the old black and whites? Yes, we collected all the 1950s movies, and we sat there, just had a, a great time watching these things, and we would watch for the scenes which were very uh, indicative, or very, they represented the whole genre, and we would steal those scenes and put them in the game. Now, what, when you were doing Red and Ted Roadshow, um, uh, what the girl singer, uh... Car- Carlisle, I believe, was the Yeah, you know, I came in very late on that game. I, I think I did the multi-ball start for that. I didn't do too much else. That was uh, Scott Solomiani. But, yeah, it, that was an original theme. I don't know if that country singer had anything to do with the approval process. Okay. Because I, I know that, like, people have tried to license the, you know, the art on the cabinets, and they have to get a, they have to get approval from her as a third-party license. And I yeah, didn't know... Yeah, she might if- have a contract with Williams as far as what they can do as far as resale of the art. Now, how did you feel with any one of the particular designers? Did you have a, a particular favorite that you liked to work with? Uh, I would have to say it was Brian Eddy, and it was simply because he he was a very team-focused guy that whatever theme he was working on, he wanted to hear everyone's opinions, no matter how diverse or odd they were. And as a team, we would sit down and decide what was suitable for the game, and if you had a good idea, it would go in the game. And I was, I was it was a, just a thrill to have either my 
my dot ideas or even some of the speech that I wrote actually show up in the game. Now, on the Internet Pinball Database, it says you, there's 23 games you did, but you said you did 26. Yep. What are the three left out? Uh, well, I'm not looking on the computer right now. I can give you a rundown of the games. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh, these are, I don't think they're in order, but they're as best I could get. Uh, Corvette was my first one. Yeah, that's not in the Internet database. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I, maybe my name's not on the actual play field. That could be why it's not on the uh, Internet. Gotcha. Um, Dirty Harry. Okay. The Shadow. Yeah, now that was the other one. The Shadow isn't listed either. Um, and that was, of course, another Brian Eddy game, right? Right. Now, uh, that's where I had met Brian Eddy. I think I did one or two shows for that. Again, that was I, was, I showed up on board very late in that design cycle. Now... The Shadow, did how was that? That's a licensed theme too. How was that one? In that one, and did you guys get to see the movie ahead on that one? Um, that's a good question. Uh, if anyone in the department saw the movie before it came out, I don't know because the game was pretty much finished by the time I jumped on board. Okay, okay. I was just kind of curious. I mean, did what did you think of that game in, in general? Uh, that was a really fun game. I, I did see where the magnet that held the ball towards that door in the back. Uh, yeah, and the threw it ball up. would end, end up scraping the play field, and it would kind of, I guess, dirty up the game. Um, but other than that sort of, uh, I guess, design uh, issue, that was a fun play field. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fun game. I, I, I'm, I'm pissed at the person, though, that put Alec Baldwin on the back glass. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, that, that one makes no sense to me. I, I'm no great fan of his that's for sure yeah and and also since you know the the lead actress of course was certainly one of the most you know beautiful women of of certainly of that era and she's got she's been totally minimalized you know it could have been based on uh, like a heavy-handed licensor uh doug watson did the painting for that he might have been responding to uh some sort of demand where alec baldwin had to take up you know, 50% of the back glass, and the actress had to take up 25%. Uh, if you look at Demolition Man, you see that Wesley Snipes and uh, Sylvester Stallone were exactly equal in how large their heads were, and that was a demand by the licensor. Really? So Sandra Bullock got the shaft then? Pretty much. <laughs> Figures. Okay, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt your list. Uh, what other ones did you do? Okay, uh, let's see. Roadshow, Theater of Magic, Attack from Mars... Arabian Nights, Jackbot, No Fear, Safecracker, Indy 500, NBA Fastbreak, Medieval Madness, Johnny Mnemonic, Congo, Ticket Tac Toe, which I guess you could argue if it's a pinball game or not. It's For close me, enough. It had flippers and a dotmation screen, so yeah, I'm calling it a pinball. It's close enough. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can argue with Cameron all you like. Um, Scared Stiff, Champion Pub, Circus Voltaire. Junkyard, No Good Gophers, Monster Bash, Cactus Canyon, Revenge from Mars, Star Wars Episode One, and Wizard Blocks. Yeah, there's a, a few that in there. I, I don't see your Champion Pub being listed, uh, being listed either. I mean, now that that game was kind of an interesting game. I mean, was the animations were they challenging for that one? They were challenging. Actually, I had rented uh, or, or purchased the movie, I think it's Far and Away with Tom Cruise. It, it was a movie all about bare-fisted boxing. Huh. So we got some great, not that I'm a Tom Cruise fan, which I'm not, um, we got some great footage of, you know, bare fists on people's faces and distorting their, their lips and their nose. And uh, that was a lot of fun to do, each of the boxers getting pummeled in the dots. Now, on Circus Voltaire, 
you really went crazy with like some mini movies almost. You know, yep. like the animations for with the balls and the clowns passing them and, and that. Really incredible work. Well, thank you. But uh, I mean, did did was that like because Papa Duke was was pushing you to do that kind of stuff, or was that all just you know you could do it? Uh, it was a combo of both. Uh, John Papaduke, especially in that game, he wanted to let his creativity flow. That was a very... He wanted to push the boundaries and the edge of what what was known as pinball. You know, pinball to that point was all no fear and NBA fast break. It was very, uh, you know, hard-driving, uh, sort of a one-dimensional. He wanted to have a more of a, uh artistic flair to the whole package, so... We really tried to have fun and push the dots into places they've never been before. Yeah, I, I can never imagine somebody that would come up with a, a theme like that. You know, a, what a 17th century philosopher as the, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's the, the game is is a man from a theme. Did you guys? I mean, when you were sitting in that room, you know, and he presented that to you. I mean, did you all kind of look at each other and say, you know, are you sure? Yeah, I. To me, and this is just my personal taste, I was not crazy about the art package. Um, Even though I'm not adverse to something different than like an Indy 500 or something that's uh, like a straight-up, you know, mechanical, uh, forceful game, the the, the acid greens and the oranges and the yellows uh, just got a bit much after a while. Right, right. You know, I like the game, and and Cameron's home run certainly... Uh, really opened that game up. Definitely. You know, if, if he was given the time, yeah, he could have made it a much more, uh, a deeper game, much more engaging game. Right. Now, when you were working on these games, did you have an opportunity to buy each one of them, you know, when you got done? Uh, well, Dot Guys had a different arrangement than everyone else. Uh, we were able to buy one a year uh, at the, I guess, a very reduced cost. We could buy a prototype game, which were not legally allowed to be sold you know, to distributors or operators. You mean like an engineering sample? Exactly. Okay. So the games that I picked up while there was Theater of Magic, uh, Attack from Mars, Medieval Madness, and, oh, uh, Monster Bash, and uh, Revenge from Mars. Now, how was it working on Monster Bash with doing all the monsters? That I, You know what, now that you bring that up, that I think that might have been the most fun game I worked on, because I'm a big heavy metal guy. Okay. Uh, my iPod is jam-packed with just, you know, Charging heavy metal. So working with Vince Ponarelli on the, you know, doing the sounds because he's a he's a guitar player first and foremost. That was a lot of fun to work on. Now, did um, was the license a hassle on that one? It was because uh, George Gomez had wanted to license Monster Mash and get that song. Right. But the owner of that song, and I don't know the guy's name, was going to charge us, I think, twenty thousand dollars to use that song. Wow. And for a, for a pinball game, that's that's a bit much. Yeah, especially for uh, that's a fairly old song that came out in the '60s. Yeah, this guy, you know, you hear it every year in Halloween. He must be—it's just a, a cash-generating machine for that guy. Right. Well, you know that you got to retire on a song. There you go. <laughs> that's that's the one to do it on, I guess. It keeps keeps giving every year. That's right. But you know, one of the animations that I'm most proud of is actually in that game, and very few people see it. Uh, it is the the monster mosh pit. I don't know if you're familiar with that show. Yeah, yeah, I am. That uh, is cool. Do you cool. know where where I pulled that from? I have no idea. What I did when I was told to do uh, the monster mosh pit, and I wanted to do all the the monsters jumping around, I thought, well, I could just do them moshing, which is to be expected. But what if I have them do something a little different? So I went to Blockbuster and checked out Charlie Brown Christmas Special. 
And there's a dance scene in the Christmas special where the little red-headed girl is nodding her head back and forth. Uh, I think it's Schroeder has his arms out with his fingers down and doing a little dance. Okay. So I pulled each of the Peanuts characters' dances and gave it the dance to each of the monsters. <laughs> so they are good. going from uh, left to right doing, uh, you know, Charlie Brown dances. And when put to the, the, the grinding heavy metal of Vince Ponarelli, uh to me that was sort of a, a juxtaposition that I just, I live for. Now, Lyman's Lament. That's in Monster Bash. Did you do have to do any special animations for him? And no, his... I think you know I haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, I think he used existing dots in that game to put together the lament. But yeah, that's Lyman complaining, and uh, he's very famous for it. He probably still is. Uh, so we we made a whole mode out of it. <laughs> did he know that, or I mean, did he ask for that mode, or did you guys just kind of you know, as I a think joke? I, I wasn't in on the whole thing. I think George Gomez wanted to. Instituted, but of course Lyman was the only programmer, so I think Lyman actually programmed that mode. Right, right. Okay, well that kind of makes sense. It kind of ruins the surprise, though. Right? It, it does, but you know, if if you know Lyman, if you've spoken to him, it's it's very much him. All right, we're going to take a little break from talking to Adam Ryan. Pins and Vids Episode Two: Attack of the Phones is now available at pinsandvids.com. It's the best Pins and Vids yet. Double the fun and half the underwear of the first episode. Surely to be nominated for an Oscar for the best use of fake phones in a niche video or best special effects during a dream sequence. Worth much, much more than the $6 including chip and selling price. It's worth at least 7 or seven fifty. Get your copy now at pinsandvids.com. And now for a word from our lawyer. The entire sale price goes with the Pinball Hall of Fame. First episode, also available. Some pinball machines were hurt during the filming of the Pins and Vids, but they were old. Get your deranged DVDs on Coin Up Goodness now. Okay, we're back with Adam Ryan from Williams Valley Art Department. Now on Safecracker, how much of a challenge was that to have? Basically, you've got a board game going on, you've got the pinball going on, and then you have uh, the, what is it, the Assault the Vault type, you know, that secondary game. How much right. work uh, that was, was that? That was actually more of a challenge for Matt Coriel, who programmed that game. Uh, as far as dots go, it was fairly straightforward. We had certain shows to fulfill, uh, and, you know, and had to make them as the best that we could. Uh, I think it was definitely more of a, a game designer's challenge to pull it all together and pull it off. Unfortunately, the sales do not reflect um, a victory for us. You know, we tried hard. It was very innovative, but I don't think it worked in the marketplace. I, it works great in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a great cool. game. You know, I, it's one of my favorite, actually. You know, it's it's... It's fun. It's cute. It's tight. It's um, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Uh, the kids love it. The adults love it. I mean, uh, to me, it 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 appeals to a wide range of people. Yeah, it did to us too. We had it in our testing area, and we would play it for hours. And we thought, yeah, this is really fun. Uh, but I guess it was sort of an in between game that some arcades thought it was a redemption game, some thought it was a pinball game, but then they couldn't decide why or where to put it and why to buy it. Uh, I'm I wasn't on the sales team, but something someone dropped the ball there. Right. Now, on Jackpot, how did you feel about that kind of like that recycling of the pinbot and then kind of adding a gambling aspect to it? Well, for me, it was kind of fun because uh, we were told that, oh, we have to fill, uh, there was a hole in the schedule as far as the factory goes. I forget the whole circumstance there, but they wanted to bring out a game very quick. So they brought out a, a winner, which was Pinbot. They repackaged it as Jackpot with uh, John Yossi artwork on it. And as far as dots went, since the first game didn't have any dots, uh, Brian Morse and I were told, do whatever you want. 
And that was a thrill. It was. Because uh, I did the, uh, I think it was multi-ball, where you fly through all those doors. Right. Um, I sort of was channeling, in a way, what uh, Python, or the game designer Python would would have been thinking. With uh, Each door had a different card symbol, the, the clubs, the spades, the diamonds. And then I put the yin and yang, and when the heart opened, it was a broken heart. I thought that that's something as, as weird as he would do. And uh, then it leads to the jackpot eyes, and you pan up to his head, which is all those mechanical stuff, and then it explodes. So uh, we had all the memory we wanted to play with, so I made a very long show. Now, at that time, though, Python was no longer with Williams, right? No, he was he, he was shown the door uh, well before I got there. I, I met him once. Greg Ferris introduced me to him. He had dropped by. I guess to pitch a game idea, which was not accepted, thankfully. <laughs> uh, I think he took Big Bang Bar elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, I, but it was his sort of, I guess his artistic philosophy without the, all the psychosexual stuff. I thought he, he's kind of this crazy guy, so I wanted to put some craziness into that dot show. Hmm. Now, how was Dirty Harry in working in that license? Well, that was kind of a mess. I was brought in late in the project. Um, I guess... It was a license that Williams had paid for several years prior to that and never used. And suddenly, the whatever company owns Dirty Harry put pressure on Williams to actually do a game. Huh. So Barry Ausler was, uh, what I was told, uh, forced to do that license and put together a game in a hurry. Hmm. And did that make your schedule compacted? Uh, not really. I think uh, Scott Slomiani had done most of the work on that game uh, by the time I got there, but... The game felt rushed. Even though I was a novice in the pinball department, it definitely felt different than some of the other games that were coming out at the same time. And did, they, did uh, Clint Eastwood have to approve any of the dots? Uh, not to my knowledge. I think the license was so old by that time, and so was Clint, that uh, he, no one, I don't think anyone really cared. Okay. Now, what about Scared Stiff? How, how, you know, how was that to work on? Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, because it was, it's a great theme, and actually, uh, Cassandra Peterson showed up in pinball, and we got to meet her, and she's very, very short. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> no idea, and without her makeup, she looks very, very old. Really? Yeah, which, it, it's like, wait, that's, it's until she smiles and you see her teeth, do you realize who it is? Right, well, she's probably 50, I would think. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know her biography, but, uh, whatever makeup she puts on covers a, a lot. Right. How, is she still a cute lady, though? Oh, yeah. She was very, very fine, very you know, personable. She looked at all the dots. She thought it was funny. So that's pretty much the, the only celebrity meeting I had while at Williams. And she was easy to work with? Yeah, I only met her once. I guess it's her husband is her manager, so he approved the whole game after it was done. And I don't think they had much of a problem. I mean, it, you know, if you look at her, uh, I guess the license of her, uh, pretty much anything goes with that. Right, right, right. So, I mean, was that, I mean, how how sexy could have you made the game, or did they want you to make the game? I think we just stuck with, you know, what you see uh, with her on television is, is how far we went with it. The rest of it was all with monsters and creatures and uh, more of the ancillary stuff. Right. Now, on Medieval Madness, any interesting stories related to that game? Yeah, we sat, I remember the, the uh, team sat in a room. This is, uh, Doug Watson had been laid off before that game came out, because we were going to bring the Attack from Mars team back together. Um, so we're all sitting in a room, we knew what pressure we were under. Uh, everybody wanted Brian Eddy to make another Attack from Mars. So he, he even shared that pressure with us, that 
we really need to do a tech from Mars, but better. And we thought, better? You know, we, we had, there was such, such sparks flew when we put together uh, a tech from Mars. How are we supposed to top that? So we started working on the game, and it ended up being like a Monty Python ripoff at, well, as we were starting. Now, was Monty Python supposed to be the license? No, not at all. It was going to be in that vein, but uh, the, the idea was going to be Storm the Castle. And in fact, it took months to name that game. Uh, we, I still have a page of about 50 names where we were bouncing around. None of them seemed to stick. So finally, uh, we had a voting, and I think Medieval Madness came close to the top, and then Brian Eddy circled it and said, that's our name. Now, when they were using the Attack from Mars as kind of like a, you know, a benchmark at the time, I mean, they only sold about 3,500 units of Attack from Mars. Why yeah, was but, that? But it earned very well, and oh. it, it got great reviews. And well, I'm sure you've played it. It's, it's yeah. a really good game. Yeah, I own one. It, it's a great game. Um, but you know, it's, to me, for as good a game as it is, and they only made 3,500 units, it seems kind of odd. You well, know? it's odd, but consider what was happening to the industry at the time. Uh, I believe Theater Magic sold about 6,500 units. Uh, there, right. thereabouts. I don't have the exact yep, number. Yep, no, that's but right. From Theater Magic, we went downhill from there. Right. As far as units sold, until we came out with Revenge from Mars, which I think went over seven thousand. Uh, we were looking at the you know the low four figures. Right, and actually, um, Scared Stiff and Medi- Medieval Madness were both you know kind of high for that era. They were about four thousand games each. Right, and those were considered hits. Whereas five years prior to that, that would have been a dud. Right, right. So when you when when you guys did the medieval, did you feel like you surpassed Attack from Mars? I think we did, and it's because we really got into the creativity of it. Um, I wrote some speech for it. I helped design two modes for it. Uh, John Yelsey was brought in to replace Doug Watson on the art package, and you can see by that back glass, and especially the side cabinet, that is some of the finest Yelsey artwork, at least in my opinion, I've ever seen. Now, what what happened to, you know, Watson, you said, was in early, and then he got laid off and one of the, uh, you know, when they decreased teams or something yeah, like that? Yeah, they, they did a big cut. I forget if it was 50% or whatever number, but uh, they sent a lot of us engineers home. And, I mean, did, did any of the Watson art survive? No, I don't think he had even started sketching on that yet. Maybe he was talking to Brian Eddy. Uh, that part I don't know. Okay. But, uh, yeah, he... Actually, I think Doug Watson was working on ticket tac toe art when he he was asked to leave. Now, let's talk about Cactus Canyon. Sure. It's a game that I really, really like, but one thing that everybody always brings up is that, you know, end-of-game match sequence, it seems really plain. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's going on there? Um, I think, well, Cactus Canyon, as you know, was the very last dot game. And we were being pushed hard, especially myself, to... Get rid of the, you know, leave the dots behind and get onto uh, Pinball 2000. So it was my, basically my time was cut short by learning 3D design, working with uh, George Gomez and Brian Eddy on Revenge from Mars. Uh, really, myself and also Jim Rapp, who was the other sort of uh, uh, dot guy uh, who, who had contributed a little bit to it, we were just both pulled away from that game far too soon. So you mean that the animations never got drawn then? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting all the, the execs, but yeah, there, I don't think they got a complete dot package, or at least as complete as I would have made it had I not been the Pinball 2000 guy. Has anybody come back to you 
to revisit that and say, hey, we we'd really like you know to see a better match sequence. Can you draw something up? Well, you know, I've stayed in contact with Matt Coriel. He now lives in Lex- Lexington, Kentucky, working for Lexmark. Um, he may have enhanced his ROMs, but uh, he has not asked me for any dots. And actually, I, I would ask for payment if I were to do more dots. <laughs> <laughs> and since no one seems to want to, to write a check, I guess the, the game is as it is. Right. Right. Now, it, speaking of which, how much time would it take to do like a match sequence like that? Um, from a dot point of view, it's yeah. probably not that long. Uh, matches usually... You know, if a concept is very easy, like single frames or something, it would have gone very quick. It was programming was much harder than than animating, so I I couldn't speak to the actual coding. But yeah, I could probably do a quick match sequence. Okay, well, just in case I am going to get asked this, what's it going to what's the what's the number on the check that we need to get it made out so that we can <laughs> well, get this done? Well, tell you what, um, have them. They can email me at adam at hebrewart dot com, and uh, we'll talk. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of people that would like to see that, you know, some, something done on the, at the end of that. I, I don't know how how much Matt's into doing it, though. Well, um, you know, I don't know if Matt's going to listen to this tape or I can even email him. Uh, I'll find out. Yeah, maybe because there's some people that would, uh, that would and me included, that would definitely be willing to contribute to that, uh, to that cause to get that maybe, uh, get that enhanced. That would be great. Now, Wizard Blocks, how much did you work on that? Well, we as soon as the very minute we finished with uh, Star Wars Episode One, the whole team jumped on Wizard Blocks, and we were working hard on it. But I think we all saw the writing on the wall at that point. Well, you, because you, Star Wars did not make its numbers. It did not sell well in non-English speaking countries like Germany, France, which is where we used to sell most of our pinball games. Uh, we kind of knew that the axe was falling. Right, but that was. Partly management's fault. They raised the price of the game five hundred bucks and got a bunch of those European orders canceled. Yes, that too. But yeah. the the earnings we were following the earnings, and when a uh, Star Wars Episode One was put in the movie theater, it was earn- the people couldn't shove money in that thing fast enough. But uh, apparently, it didn't earn as well in some of those other countries. It was that damn Jar Jar. <laughs> you know, we saw the style guide from Lucasfilm, and they had a chart how the demographics that each of the characters was supposed to skew towards. So, like, the battle droids were young males, and Princess Amidala was uh, young female and old female. And then Jar Jar was supposed to appeal to everyone, male, female, young, and old. And I remember telling the rest of the group, Lucas is either exactly right or exactly wrong. Yeah, we know which one, too. <laughs> that damn Jar Jar. <laughs> know what he was thinking. Can't you redraw Jar Jar into something else? I don't care what it is. <laughs> Can't you take the graphics from Playboy and put it over, and put it over Jar Jar? Oh, <laughs> Just something. I, I don't care. Take the wizards from Wizard Blocks. I, I don't know. Get rid of that damn Jar Jar. You know, in my opinion, he made a better pinball character than he did a movie character. Because as you were to shoot the ball, he'd fall over. I was actually amused by that. Right, right. But I don't know. He just pisses me off on all levels. I just don't like. I'm not a Jar Jar fan, you know. But I, I guess that isn't going to happen. So now on Wizard Blocks, how far did you get with Wizard Blocks? Uh, we started uh, getting into some of the modes. Now Pet Waller, who he's a, a very uh, meticulous. Very, uh, when he designs his games, he is in control of all of the modes. And he does, he designs some fantastic games, but he definitely doesn't show his hand until he's ready. 
Now, that works okay in DOS where I could put together a brand new show in two or three days if he changes his mind, but in 3D, if you design like human models or creature models and he throws the whole mode out, then you have to start from scratch and that could be a month of work. Wow. So we did run into some time constraints as far as uh, changing of minds you know, dynamically to make the game better. Uh, the, the designing graphics was a brand new ball game. How many wizards did you get designed? Uh, haven't seen that stuff in a while. There might have been five wizards, and you know, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I think there's five wizards, but you didn't get them all drawn, right? No, I think we were 3D modeling. Like there was the young boy wizard. I think there's the Egyptian goddess wizard that was modeled. Um, I forget the other ones, but I was working on a character called the Underground Terror, which was sort of a little green gremlin guy, sort of a hybrid frog-human, who uh, John Yelsey had drawn in 2D. I created that character in 3D, and I was able to animate him, had him giving you the extra ball, had him uh, throwing a bomb at you. There a lot of fun stuff. I really pushed my 3D skills at that time, but then they closed the doors. Now, was that typical where Yelsey would, would draw something and you guys would have to 3D it? Um, it was only typical on that game. Uh, before that... Uh, you know, when Yelsey had contributed to Revenge from Mars, we kind of knew what the Martians looked like. Right, right. Now, let's talk about the Black Monday thing. You know, what? how did that go down for you? Um, I showed up. We actually had an intern from Holland who was staying for a couple months, and I had gone to my mother's house, got all these dishes for him to use because he had nothing. He had paper plates. So I walk into the, the, the company with a big box full of dishes. And I walk it over to his desk, and Paul Barker, who was a production artist at the time, turned to me and said, uh, Adam, you might want to be taking boxes out today, not bringing them in. Oh. Uh, because by the time I showed up at work that day, um, the Internet had been shut down, the network had been plug had been pulled, and there was supposed to be a meeting at noon that day, all company-wide. So we all knew what was about to happen. Right. So they brought us all into the cafeteria, and they told us what we all knew, which is pinball has been you know, losing money like an open wound, and uh, they can no longer justify to their shareholders why we even exist. So they, we we're all going to get severance in some degree based on our uh, tenure there, and artists and programmers were going to be interviewed at Midway. So did you go for an interview? Yeah, actually I interviewed back at gaming, which is sort of a full circle for me, I uh, didn't like what I saw there, so I interviewed at Midway, and uh, I eventually hooked up with their sports department, uh, working on red card soccer. Hmm. Okay. So now, how was it working over on the Midway side? Well, I, I would define it as uh, the inmates running the asylum. Uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of designers who were very young compared to, especially compared to the managers in pinball. Uh, I didn't, I didn't feel that they were managing things very well. I mean, they're all fantastic talents and great designers, but as far as managers go, uh, I think they weren't in their correct roles. Right. So it just made everything just chaos, huh? Yeah, I, you know, cause I expect a certain level of professionalism, and maybe that's, that's a, a bad expectation in a game company, <laughs> but uh, I, I just really didn't like the vibe there. Uh, so I learned 3D Studio Max as fast as I could, uh, from one of their experts there. And during that time, as everybody remembers, the dot-com era was in full swing. So I taught myself HTML, and I had all the graphics uh, skills down. 
So I put my resume out, and boy, did I get some bites. So you didn't, how long were you at Midway? I was at Midway for about six months when I got an offer I absolutely could not refuse from a, a dot-com company. And how long did you stay at that company? Uh, I was there actually a year and a half. Um, one of our clients was in one of the Twin Towers, uh, J.P. Morgan Treasury uh, Services. Oops. And uh, that was one of our graphic clients through that company. So after 19 Muslims decided to fly a plane to the building, right. uh, we pretty much lost our only uh, uh, source of revenue at that time. They laid off our whole department. Wow. Wow. Were, were, the, were there the, any of your, um, any of your uh, client killed in the... Uh... That I don't know. I think they were low enough in the building. I think they were like 11th floor or something like that. I think they all got out. Right. But, you know, I, I praise God. I hope they all got out. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, okay, so now you're starting to do some stuff you were for Pat Lawler. Yes. Are you going to still continue to do that? Oh, I am. Um, he, you know, I, I work with him on Ripley's, on Grand Prix, and NASCAR. Um, I chose not to do Family Guy. Uh, Why? I'm not sure what he's doing next, but I, I did say, hey, you know, if you've got another game, give me a call. Why didn't you want to do Family Guy? Uh, for me, it's twofold. First off, I really hate that show. And <laughs> second, I just I find it to be a very... Uh, there's pretty much an obscene show. I mean, sure, the, the Simpsons get a little raunchy with their humor, but Family Guy... Yeah, they're another level up or on, the, on the raunch level. <laughs> yeah. It may be. Yeah. I just didn't really want to sign my name onto that kind of license. Right. Right. Now, did, do you think Pat Lawler had a problem with that license? Um, I really can't speak for them, but I do know that, that was not their first pick. Right. Right. Well, it seems the game seems to be doing well. You well, know, good. I mean, because the pinball industry definitely needs uh, some blood flowing, or else the the only company left on planet Earth is going to have some trouble. Now, how was uh, how was Ripley's? How did you feel about doing that one? Uh, Ripley's was cool. Um, I wasn't crazy about the backlash. And John Yelsey is a friend of mine. I respect him like no other artist on this planet. But I think the backlash is a bit of a turnoff for players. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. You know, I guess it kind of captures the, the whole Ripley's theme fairly well, but it's not. You know, for me to walk up to it, I kind of look at it and well, kind of cringe. Well, you've got this trunk head staring at you, and yeah. for me, uh, you know, I'm not a squeamish guy, but that's a little grotesque. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I kind of like the glasses with the chicks on it, you know. That's just me, though. <laughs> it works every time. <laughs> it does, it does. And what, what is there to complain about that? What, her cleavage is too low? I mean, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, you know, who's going to ever say that? Not too many people. Not too many. Well, there is some debate about theater of magic, but I won't go into that. You know, yeah. I'm, speaking of theater of magic, the the lady that did the voice for theater of magic in Tales from the Radiant Nights that was the same person, right? I think so. Okay. Did you? I mean, was this a, a Papaduke thing that he just chose to go kind of that route? Cause Probably. Too... I think he he liked her voice and uh, that, it matched his his uh, sensibilities or his his aesthetics, and he just went for that. And I mean, those two games have a very similar look and feel to them. Definitely. He. Papaduke was more of a crossover in that uh, a lot of games that Williams put out, like a No Fear Indy 500, definitely skew masculine, period. There is no effort made to appeal to anyone but, you know, guys, guys right. like cars, that kind of stuff. Right. Papaduke added some art and some flair to his games. And definitely in Theater Magic, there was some crossover play, and I think that's why it earned so well. Now, was there, uh, were there people that complained about that backlash? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know about the public, but I know within my own family sphere and friendly sphere, or friend sphere, there is some uh, uh, 
questioning. There was some concern. Exactly. Some concern. Now, how were you know you did you also did some racing things? Of course, you did Indy 500 and you did you know the Grand Prix slash NASCAR for right. Pat Lawler. You know how was uh, how was it doing those uh, you know racing style games? Well, with Indy 500, that was challenging because the licensor did not want us showing pretty much anything fun. It was driving. The car is going left to right. Car is going right to left. Car is coming at you. Car is going away from you. And as a dot guy, that's very limiting. So you, know, you couldn't have a one, car one car accident on on the display, and then the announcer comes in and said, "But he's okay." Huh, so it takes mean... any edge off that game. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't have you know a car going through the pits and guys flying left and right and tires and wrenches and stuff. Exactly. So instead, we had more fun with cows. Right. And, I mean, was that a... I would have never thought that Indy 500 would be a difficult license to work with. Well, difficult in that, as far as dots go, it, it was the same thing over and over again. We we had very little variety going. Hmm. So there was no way to, to, to implement anything else into that? Uh, not really. It was, uh, you know, win the trophy, drive the car, uh, drive the car around, drive the car over something, drive it under something. It, so... Dot-wise, there's really no human activity for players to to engage with. And you you came up with obviously with other ideas, and you're saying the li- the the licensor just said no. Pretty much, it was they wanted a very straight up Indy 500 theme. Hmm. Yeah, they... if, if my memory serves, I don't think the design team really you know pushed that envelope. They were just so happy to have that theme or that license that we just went with it. Well, that that game is kind of odd because there's no like discernible end to it. <laughs> you know, I, like, well, let's take, like, World Cup soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you you have different matches that you're building up to, you know, the final match. With Indy 500, it's like one big race that never ends. You know, it just keeps going. It's You know you know what I mean? Uh, to yep. me, I, if, I, if it was me, I would have had, you know, races building up to the one big race. You know, or, or you know, qualifiers or something. And it just... It's it it doesn't I don't you don't really get that feel from it you know what I mean I agree I, I was left a little cold and especially the the playfield art um, I think it was Dan Hughes he was a freelancer pulled in for only a couple games um, it didn't really excite me that much now the backlash itself with the cars very very well rendered right but that's the play yeah field I think the colors were a bit uh, acidic uh, there's a lot of clashing it just didn't do much for me why now why would they bring a freelancer in for that I think it. it Two things. I think this Dan Hughes guy, and I, I really never met him. I was told that he was a very good auto in, uh, auto illustrator, so he could paint cars very well. Hmm. So that's one one reason to bring him in. Second, I think everyone else is busy. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's a game I'd sure like to see the software uh, updated on, but I guess that's a dream. <laughs> well, just like any piece of art, at some point you have to put the brushes down and hang the canvas. Right, right, right. Now, how was Grand Prix slash NASCAR? Um, that was more fun. Uh, Pet Lawler definitely put some more into it, some more interest in it, um, as far as like spin-outs, uh, some crashes and stuff. Uh, I had more fun with that. It could also be because of where I did. I did it at home, uh, which is very different for me to do dots at home as opposed to in an engineering department. But uh, I don't know. I had a good time doing that one. Now, No Good Gophers, how was that game? Uh, that was a theme that you know Pat started. I think it, it went in a couple of different directions before it finally he, he stayed with that one theme. Uh, I had a lot of fun with the Gophers, you know, uh, sending pinballs to hit them. They were launching it with a slingshot. Uh, 
as far as the, the game play itself, maybe I just wasn't very good at that play field uh, with, with the scoop that launches the ball. I could never really get the hole in one. But uh, at least with Cartoon Gophers, it was more fun to beat them up. Right, right. Now, the um, back a, a year a year ago, there was that um, uh, Lewis was uh, changed the software a little bit for one of these charities. Were were you involved in that at all? No. Ever since leaving Williams, and except for the the Pat Lawler part, I really haven't contributed much to the the world of pinball. Okay. I was just curious because I, I think Lewis changed the software a little bit for some sort of a charity event, but then there was some legal thing, and they they ends up that they had to that they couldn't release the code. And oh, that's too bad because yeah. uh, you know Lewis is a, a just a gifted programmer, and I'm sure if he got another crack at it after you know a year or two of of playing the game, he could probably improve things. Right. 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 Now, how was Junkyard? Anything interesting in that game? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I guess Barry Elzer created the playfield and then handed it to Dwight Sullivan, and that was it. Done. There was no thought behind it, no theme, nothing. So someone had come up with, with sort of a, a junk theme, like you're trying to free some people from a junkyard, but that was it. So I walked into Dwight's office and said, there's really nothing, nothing here in this game to make me want to win it. It's just collecting junk. So he said, all right, Adam, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. When I get back in two weeks, I want a theme. <laughs> and he left. So when he got back, I gave him one. And that's essentially what's in the game right now. Huh, so you're pretty proud of that, then? I am, because he, he Dwight definitely likes to code what, what he's interested in and take control, but I was surprised when he liked my theme and we went with it, hmm. which was building the jalopy. Right, and, oh, you know, and I mean, looking back on it, you're all a-okay with that? You wouldn't have made any changes? Um... I think the biggest disappointment with that game was the play field. Um, I believe on the, that left, I forget if it's a scoop or there's a left lane on that game that is nearly impossible to hit. Right. Okay. I mean, unless you're Lyman Sheets, you just can't hit that. Right, right. Now, what about anything interesting on Tales of the Arabian Nights? Uh, that, that was a Let's see. Let's go back a ways. Um, I, I like that kind of theme. I like the sort of the Middle Eastern, uh, a little more flair to, to uh, the, the visuals. Uh, the music was very good in that game. Uh, I, I think that was just a, a pleasure to do. Papa Duke's just a great guy to work with. And what about who, who done it? Who done it? <laughs> Back to Dwight. Um, to me, that game. Every time I hear of that game or think of that game, I remember sitting in his office and we were trying to do those talking heads of the different characters, and we wanted one of their mouths to open in a certain way. And he asked me, "Can you do a half pixel?" Mm. And you can't turn half a light bulb on. Right. And he, I think he was serious. <laughs> uh, to this day, I'll never know, but I, I just was so perplexed by that request, I left his office. So, Now, how was it working with Richie on No Fear? Um, I didn't work with him that closely. I think he was one foot out the door at that time. Uh, he was trying to go over to, I believe it was Atari in California, to do uh, California Speed. So he was trying to get No Fear done and just get the heck out of Dodge. Right. Right. But I do remember he, I think due to all of his motorcycle racing, he's partially deaf in either one year or both. Right. So he kept asking Vince Ponarelli for more bass. Everything was more bass. He wanted to feel the music. So uh, that game is very bass heavy. <laughs> I like that. More bass. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that he has a, has a hearing problem. 
Yeah, so, yeah, that's interesting. And right. also there's that one quote in the game, second place is the first loser. Right. And as a player, that doesn't really make you feel that good. No. that You know, that whole game, that No Fear, I, it, that game never did anything for me. Of course, I kind of have a problem with games without pop bumpers. <laughs> but, I mean, there's some exceptions. Like, I like Champion Pub as mm-hmm. much as some people don't like it. I think it's kind of a cool game. Um, and that has no pop bumpers, but... Uh, you know, yeah, but generally, see, see, Junkyard doesn't have pop bumpers, and right. I, I have a problem with games, you know, that like that. But there's yeah, exceptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, pop bumpers have been around since, you know, 1948, and I just, it's something, you know, flippers, pop bumpers, and slingshots. Every game has to have that. Right, it's like changing the formulation of Coca-Cola. It's yeah, ex- not the same. Yeah, exactly. So, well, is there anything I left out or anything you want to add? Oh, uh, let's see. I'm looking over my list here. Uh... Well, I guess that the transition from DOTS to PIN 2000 was, was quite an exceptional experience. It pushed me on every level, and I'm proud of what I did and what our team did. Even though we were only given pretty much two and a half games to work on before uh, we were all said packing, uh, the normal game cycle was nine months, and you can make all the pregnancy jokes you want there, but right. uh, for uh, PIN 2000, a, a platform that had not been, you know, it went from zero to a hundred in seven months. And every member of that PIMO group just busted their backside to get that out the door. And we brought it to London to a trade show that uh, January of 99. Yep, I remember. And I was there and I, I was just wasted as far as just how much work we had put into it and the long flight and all that. But standing there and having people who have never seen it before run up to the game and play it and really get into it. There is nothing like it. Wow. It's wow. just a very emotional experience for me. And uh, I think everybody else felt the same, that when the sales started rolling in, we at that time we thought we had saved pinball and we were just euphoric. Yeah, little did you know, though. I mean, how did you feel about management's reaction to the whole Pinball 2000 thing? Um, I, I was happy with them that they gave us the shot. They gave us the money to actually dump pinball as we knew it and recreate it from the ground up with George Gomez and Pat Lawler's amazing idea. Because they really, they had sort of, they were inspired by John Papaduke's idea, but they took it one level farther with the whole hologram thing. Uh, now, were you there for that first meeting when, when Pat and uh, George... I wasn't there for the meeting, but uh, I someone came in my office and said, Adam, you've got to come over here. So we all went over to the Midway building, and they, that's where they had hidden the very first prototype. And I walked in the room and they said, Adam, take a look at that. What do you think? And I was just, I was nuked by it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, that it actually worked. You could put a hologram on a play field and interact with it. And now, how would how were they implementing that on their on their model? On the, it was, a, I believe, a foam core play field. Uh, George had taken some comic books and cut them up and made a back glass out of it. And... Uh, he had one picture using an Amiga computer, if you even remember what those are. Yeah, I remember. Um, uh, with a, some sort of monitor uh, suspended at the correct angle. And there was sort of a, uh, like one of those robots from RoboCop standing there facing you with his guns aimed at you. And it was just in your face, and it was a thing of beauty. Huh. So right then you saw the potential. We did. And actually it was uh, uh, John Papaduke's team. We went out to lunch after that. He had been developing a different version of PIN 2000 with a monitor in the back glass. Yeah, kind of like a reflected. baby Pac-Man type thing. 
Uh, yeah, I guess that, that, was, that was the thought. And he was designing a whole cabinet to, to uh, frame it and everything. And during this lunch, it was a very depressing lunch, actually, because John had put his heart and soul into it. And he went around the table asking us, well, what do you think of this new thing that uh, George and Pat had brought in? And we all very reluctantly admitted that this hologram thing is just so cool, we have to go with this version. So he was pretty hurt, huh? Uh, well, I hope he wasn't because his his product was magnificent as well, but the the cool factor was definitely there, especially the interaction with the ball and the the video graphics. Would have Papa Duke's flavor of Pinball 2000, would have it been as much work to program as Pinball 2000? Yes, because the graphics would have been the same amount. We, we would have been doing different things with them, but it would have pretty much been playing movies back as you play pinball. Yeah, you know, that's the, the problem with that, and I know this kind of, uh, this maybe isn't a good thing to mention to you, a dot guy, is that sometimes <laughs> well, the movies can overtake the pinball when it interrupts the whole flow of the game, and the good thing about Pinball 2000 is that it implements it right into the game so that you don't have to look up to see it. Right. That and, definitely, that married uh, animations with physical pinball, and I think that's what really stood out from their uh, innovation, and that's why we all voted for that. Yeah, and that's why I was kind of curious. Did you ever do like you know, you know, frame basically a mini movie, and then have a designer say, you know, that's you did a great job, but that's just it's too much, it's too long, it'd take too much time away from you know interrupting the flow of the game. Did anybody? I mean, was all that the ever? time, all, all the time, because as dot guys, you want to do the best stuff we can and play these movies back and just show how cool we can get dots to work, but. You're, you're doing it at the disservice of the game. Right. And there are a lot of times programmers would um, implement flipper interrupts, where if that long multi-ball show is going to play again, just hit the flippers, you know, both flippers at the same time, and the, the show interrupts and it just starts spewing balls at you. Right, and did that hurt you when, when they did that? Not really, because the show is in there for people who don't know about the flipper interrupt and people who like to watch dots, it's there. Right. right. Now, we, we were criticized all the time by people saying, well, no one watches the dots. So that makes us feel real good, I'll tell you. <laughs> My ego got kicked every day. Um, but really, if you had a game without dots, no one would play it, because the games with dots were more engaging. Right. But now, the people who play games over and over again, they stop looking at the dots. Right, right. So now, we really couldn't win. Yeah. <laughs> we were a necessary evil to some people. <laughs> now, did you ever have a problem with the... Um, thing that they called bog where the machine couldn't you know wasn't the, the 6809 that was running wpc wasn't fast enough to display your animations and you know and flash the lights and update the scores and yeah we, shoot the we always or often we would have to scale down the shows and actually take what's called dither out of the shows which are the alternating uh, dot patterns we'd have to smooth out the dots and actually take detail out of our shows in order for them to play back in real time. Because and it, Lyman was the king of uh, choreographing what well, he would just yell out, Bog! Um, he would choreograph that out and make sure the light shows behaved. Uh, he was exceptional at that. Yeah, because the, the one that always comes to mind is, is Johnny Mnemonic uh, in, in, the, in the lane change. When you go hit the flipper to do the lane change, and it's like two or three seconds later before it actually does that. 
you know, yeah, on, well, on the you know, it's processor speed, and you know, the dots are playing, the music is going, uh, the light shows, so there's a lot happening on a very weak processor. Right, right. So you had to deal with that then, huh? Yeah, we sometimes we'd have to strip down the shows, but there, in some cases, there's nothing to do. That you know, if you put one pixel up there, you're going to bog the game. So we just had to live with it. Now, have you worked with uh, Lyman's new system on uh, at Stern, the SAM system that has more than the three levels of intensity in the dots? No, I haven't. I've heard about it, and as, as a former dot guy, it sounds really cool because that's what we were all praying for back then. Um, you know, why why couldn't they ago. do that at Williams? I'm sorry, what was that? Why couldn't they do that at Williams? Have the different... I think they were reluctant to. They didn't want to put the effort into engineering that when you can make the same amount of money with three colors. Right, right. So does your tool package change when they change the dot intensity? Um, oh, as far as like the yeah. what Lyman is doing now? Well, yeah. Like for So now you've got, I don't know, it's got nine levels of intensity or whatever. Um, you know, I, I can't answer that question without talking to those guys, but my guess would be we can still use Deluxe Animation because uh, Deluxe Animation can support 256 colors. Okay, okay. So that's just a guess. I, I, that's an educated guess, not an actual fact. So you're looking forward to do more pin games then? Yeah, I wouldn't mind if my schedule opens up. I have a full-time job, and I'm doing a lot, quite a bit of freelance of my own fine art in the evenings. So uh, my days are pretty much booked morning to night. Really? Well, it's good. That means you're busy and you're good. Oh, thank you. Good combination of the two. Well, I mean, you did an outstanding job. I mean, especially like Circus Voltaire. I mean, the, the animations on that, are, to me, and, and Attack from Mars are just, you know, that whole thing with the extra ball. I mean, that's, that's so classic. I mean, pe- people talk about that all the time. When they come over and play that game and they get an extra ball and they see that animation, they're like, Did you see that? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you see, that makes me feel good because as an artist... I could do all the art I want in, in my studio or, you know, under a desk or whatever, but uh, it's when people actually interact or, or respond to my art or my animations, that's the real reward. I, I'll leave you with this story. I went uh, downstairs to our testing area, and there was a guy playing Monster Bash. And he got the extra ball with Dracula doing the John Travolta disco scene. Right, right. I had actually rented uh, Saturday Night Live, or I'm sorry, Saturday Night Fever, and... Uh, and digitized Travolta to be Dracula. And Vince Ponarelli had done that disco theme. I think it was uh, like YMCA or... Right, right, and then the, yeah, then the thing falls on his head. Exactly. So I'm this guy, he's the only one in the room, and he did not notice me come in. And when he got extra ball, he started dancing exactly how Dracula was dancing. And <laughs> as soon as he, he kind of heard me after he was done, he turned around, he was very embarrassed, because <laughs> I caught him dancing. Wow. And... I smiled ear to ear just knowing that I had reached someone. That someone actually watched my animation, heard the music from Vince, and responded how exactly how we wanted him to, which was in a very enjoyable way. He was completely part of the game at that point. Well, you mentioned something in there. You said you digitized part of the movie. Yes. What, what do you mean? How, did that, how does that work? Uh, we had some different tools. Actually, we were using uh, one tool that was written by the Midway guys for Mortal Kombat. Um, it would actually, you could take a VHS tape, uh, click the, like the button capture, and capture several frames, I think in a very low resolution, uh, and bring those frames as uh, grayscale frames into deluxe animation, and then break them down by hand into dots. Hmm. Did that make things easier? 
It did when you had to get very complex things happening, especially like human movement and, uh, let's say, like a car or a spaceship rotating. Uh, it really helped. Right. Otherwise, you'd have to draw all that by hand, and I'm, you could probably look at several games and see where we did do it by hand and where we digitized it. There's definitely a difference. Hmm. Okay. Now, yeah, like on that sequence you're talking about on Monster Bash, the the like the the Dracula in the in the mirror ball or whatever, mm-hmm. the way because of the way they're sized and you have to show distance between the mirror ball and the top of his head, everything had to be fairly small. Yeah, oh. unfortunately, I would have liked more height on that to show more detail of Dracula doing the the Travolta dance. Right, because he's just not big enough to get in the screen doesn't provide that level of detail. No, but that's part of the art is can Adam do it in 32 pixels high and you know, I'll leave that up to the public, but I think I was able to pull it off. Yeah, I was going to say it it seems extremely challenging to do something like that. Well, you have to leave a lot of details out. Like his eyes are just literally two black dots. He has no mouth if memory serves. Um you just have to get when an animation is moving, when a character is moving, the human mind actually uh, adds more detail to it than is actually there. Because right. when, when a, a shape is moving like a human, you ascribe human qualities to it. Gotcha. So I'm trying, and sometimes not succeeding, to actually use the human mind to fill in everything I can't draw. Right. Now, I mean, did anybody ever say, well, maybe you could show it from, you know, the top of the mirror ball and show the mirror ball coming down, and as, you know, it gets closer and closer to his head, he gets bigger and bigger. Or, I well, don't, no know. one made that suggestion on that particular one, but I have had requests before where they want it zoomed in on something and then pan out to show something else. But for people who don't do dots every day, they keep forgetting that we only have 32 pixels high. So there's only literally so much we can display at any one time. Right, right. Um, what Dwight liked to do is actually edit. He liked to show one scene and then cut to another scene and then cut back to another scene to try to, just like a TV show, give you the impression of what's going on in a larger space. Right, like multiple camera angles. Bingo. <laughs> and did that drive you nuts? No, it, it was definitely a challenge versus some of the other shows I've done because usually a show is just one camera, let's follow the action, then it ends, and then go play pinball again. Uh, Dwight liked more cine- sort of cinematographic feel. Right, and so that you know provided more work for you, though. <laughs> oh, it sure did, but, you know, it, dots were a very uh, rewarding experience. It's, it's something that even when I did uh, uh, NASCAR and, and Ripley's at home, it still wasn't the same as working with those guys at the company itself. Right, because there was more feedback and, 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 and whatever, you know. Yeah, we actually sort of, during at least the eight or nine or ten hours I was there every day, I would live the whole pinball thing, which is you do the dot show, you bring it to the programmer, they, they put it in the game, then you get to flip up the game and see how it feels. And if it doesn't feel right, you tweak it, you bring it back. And that's sort of the iterative process and the just having a whole experience was just really rewarding, and it cannot be reproduced. I, I've been at web companies, e-learning companies. Uh, yeah, I'm at a, a company we manufacture massage tables, and I'm their creative director. Nothing compares to the whole pinball experience. So are, now, when you worked in it, when you went and walked into pinball, you know, from the gaming, had you you never owned a game before? How much pinball have you ever played? Uh, only that? The, the when I would sneak out of the uh, gaming. Uh, division and sneak over and play pinball. 
that's, but, that's the experience I had. But prior and, to... You know, they also have Mortal Kombat 2 there and Cruising USA, but I didn't play those. I played pinball. Now, prior to this, though, how much pinball experience did you have? Just uh, as a... Pretty much zero. I... I really never experienced a lot of pinball growing up. Uh, I did hang out, you know, video arcades playing uh, like Tempest or uh, or Tron, which is actually a George Gomez game. Right. Uh, yeah, I played those as a kid, but then I sort of dropped out of video games until I I actually joined WMS. Hmm. Now, do you still own the games that you bought from? from you know, Lawrence? I've sold two of them, and actually, uh, if if your listeners are interested, I am looking to sell my Attack from Mars, Medieval Madness, and my uh, uh, Theater of Magic. Why? Um, I don't live in a very big place, and we just really have no room for pinball. So currently, these pinball games are at friends' houses. Oh, right. Which is kind of too bad. I mean, if we were ever to buy like a, a really big place and have a basement and, and do the pinball thing. But uh, at the moment, they're not here, and if someone is interested in picking those up, i definitely make them an offer. Huh. Okay, cool. Well, I'm sure you're going to get some. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're very good games, I must admit. Right. Okay, well, cool, Adam. I really, really appreciate the time. Well, thank you. Okay. I'd like to thank Adam Ryan for joining us today and talking to us here on TopCast. Uh, it was really, really a great interview and a joy talking to Adam and his experiences doing the uh, Dot Matrix artwork on the WPC pinball games and the newer Stern games, too. So thank you again, Adam, and that's another episode of TopCast. I hope you hear us again soon. <laughs>